My name is Vagabond. I'd like to welcome you to Audiovisual Terrorism, the title of this podcast, which is also the title of my production company, which was started in 2001. Um, my crew and I are a bunch of award-winning filmmakers. We've won awards at several festivals around the world. And the reasons for doing the podcast are several. One is we want to talk about some of the work that we've done because the stories that we, the stories behind making some of these films are as interesting as the films themselves. Um, the other thing that we're trying to do is talk about the films that we're trying to make or in the process of making. And so you'll hear a couple of different podcasts about how an idea comes to fruition and how that idea comes into production and then how it ends up in the end and how you know, different or similar or whether we achieved our goals and how those goals changed and all those different kinds of things. And part of this is to demystify the process of making a film. And part of it is that these are just really good stories, that making films is a lot of fun. It's a lot of work and it takes a lot of ingenuity and a lot of creativity, not just to make the films, but to produce them. And what I mean by that is how do you go about, you know, making things happen with little to no money? Because all of our films are either no budget or low budget. And so what we'd like to do is take you on this journey that we've been going on for a number of years now and see because we found it so interesting. Um that we just keep doing it. We're gluttons for punishment in that way. And so we wanted to take other people along for the journey and also hopefully demystify this process of making films and how films are supposed to be made, in part because we make films because we love making art. We're not in it for the money. And so that's why we decided to start this podcast. This first episode is about my film Machetero. It's 2019. Um, I actually finished the film in 2009, so the film is 10 years old. The film is older than that. Uh, I had written the script years before that. It took me years to make the film. It wound up going around the world and winning a bunch of awards at a bunch of different festivals. Um, it won awards in South Africa, in Thailand, um, Ireland, uh, England, um, New York. Uh, I might have skipped one. But the film is about the Puerto Rican independence movement. And for people who don't know, Puerto Rico has been a colony of the United States since 1898. Uh, and before that, it was a colony of Spain. It's one of the oldest colonies in the world. And there's always been a strong independence movement um, that has at times been incredibly violent. And the film Machetero is about the violent aspects of the Puerto Rican independence movement. It stars Not For Profit, who is the lead singer of a band that I worked with for a really long time called uh, Reconstruction. They were a hardcore punk band from out of New York. It stars Dilcia Pagan, who is a former Puerto Rican political prisoner of war, um, who served 20 years in US prisons for trying to free Puerto Rico. It stars my nephew, Kelvin Fernandez, um, who was pretty young at the time and is a fantastic actor. Um, it also stars Isaac Tabancule, who people would remember most recently from Black Panther. Um, but he's also worked with uh, Jim Jarmusch, Claire Denis, Michael Mann, um, Lars von Trier. He's worked with some pretty heavy hitters. I feel lucky to have been among that that crowd of people uh, that he's worked with. And so this is me reflecting on Machetero and how it was made 10 years after we finished it in 2009. Check one, two. One, two. Yeah, you sound good. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking, I was talking to, to, to 
my girlfriend resistor about this the other day. And I was saying that in the beginning, when I first wanted to be a filmmaker, you know, I wanted to have... I'm kind of whittling things down. You know what I mean? Like whittling things down to what, what's really the most important thing, you know? And so when I was younger, I wanted to be a famous filmmaker uh, and I wanted to work in Hollywood and all that other stuff, right? And then, you know, you, you, sh you have to ask yourself the question, like, you, you see the people who are working, like I worked in, I've been working in this business for like um, about 30 years now. What is it, 1989? Yeah, 1919, 2019, right? It was 30 years. I've been working in this business for 30 years. And in the 30 years, you, I've seen the people that work in this business, and I don't know if I can be them, you know what I mean? And I was trying really hard back then because that's what I thought I wanted, you know? And, you know, had I gotten that sort of level of success at that age, it, it would have, you know, it would have gelled, right? Because it was what I wanted. And I'm, and maybe when I got it, it would have been fine. I, I So, but it, over the years, my question is, well, you know. Is that really what you wanted? Do you, do you really want to be famous? Is that what's really, no, nah, you don't really want to be famous, but you want to. You want to be able to pull people's coattails every once in a while. No, you just want to be able to make the thing that, look, what it comes down to is you just want to make work, Right. You just want to make work. That's what, that was the hard lesson that I had learned with Machetero, right? So with Machetero, when I finished it, Machetero, you know, I did everything that everybody had asked me to do on Machetero. Right. In other words, go out, make a film, don't wait for anybody, blah, 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 right? I went out, I made the film with nobody. I mean, a lot of times it was me and Jeff and whoever was, acting in the scene at that moment you know um i mean let me let me ask you a question in terms of structure just narrative themes and everything you don't feel like you make better work now than you could have then you feel like when you made machetero if you had what you have now you would have made a better film i, I think you had to make some of those mistakes man like i don't what do you mean you mean to say i mean so let, let's say you were making machetero say instead of the pd150 you had that red epic Right, like that. You no, were starting the, the, now. It would be the same, Machete, right? It would be the same. It would be the same. Yeah, it would be any different. That's no. what I'm saying. Yeah, but 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 that's because, but that, that's not because that's not because I made mistakes making Machete. That's because um, here we are, ten years down the line, right? And I'm still in the same fucking place that I was when I was doing Machete, except that. I've upped my gear game, right? So, I mean, I you don't think you write better? Seriously, like you really don't think you? Come on, man. I don't know. I don't. I because I, you know, half the time I'm not even writing. Look, you didn't have a script or anything for much detail. All that was... I had twenty three pages for okay, much. Okay, all but that's what I'm saying. All of that was improvised. Yes, yeah. that's, that's very difficult. That's not difficult. Maybe not to you, right? But you're you're dealing with what you have, right? Right, you're dealing with people who are not necessarily trained actors, who aren't really looking to you for pages or lines or this is what we just should, for direction. This is what we should talk about because Machetero is actually ten years old. Okay, we're talking about it already. Okay, I'm just so I told you this was a therapy podcast. So go ahead. 
So the th- the question is. So now the question. How does is, that make you feel? What that's ten years. It doesn't. It doesn't. It, it doesn't feel either. Well, I mean, like, it's a funny thing because they say that um, if you're anxious, that you're living in the future, right? Uh, and you're not living in the present. And I think that I have a incredibly keen sense of time, and I think it comes from filmmaking. You know, because you have to know, you're always concerned about how much you need to make something work. How much time do you need yeah, to make something work? Do you hold a work? shot? How long do you need to hold the shot? How long do we need to set up for the shot? How long do we hold the shot and post? You know, when do we cut? What do we cut to? How long is it going to take me to find the next shot? You know what I mean? So I'm hyper aware of time. I'm like really hyper aware of time. You know, um, I I I feel lost if I don't have a watch on. Um, I'm just really hyper aware of time. Like I know, like I'll sit down and say to myself, you know, if like some people say, oh, I'm going to go to the movies. It's only two hours. And I go, no, nah, it's actually three hours. By the time you get there and you, you get online, you get a ticket, you park and all that other stuff and you. You, know, you got to get to the theater and then you come out of the theater and, you know, you're going to, you know, watch the credits roll and you get out of the theater and then you're going to use the bathroom and then you're, gonna, you know, get in the car, you're going to drive back home. It's, you know, it's not, I'm hyper aware of how long things take. You know what I mean? Like I think always take longer than we imagine. Uh, it's very rare that things happen faster than they do. And when they do, it's a shock to me. It's like a surprise. I think that um, with with Machetero, I'm when I look. If I was in, if you told me ten years ago that I would be in this situation, the situation I find myself in now, where yeah, you got better gear, um, you've done a bunch of films. Uh, but you haven't had what what people would call critical success. Uh, I'm not concerned with critical success. I so really. What's the problem? The, like the problem. Seem, like, here's, here's a, that, that's what I'm saying. Like you're saying, if I came back to you ten years ago and say you didn't have any critical success with Machetero, that wouldn't register for you. Oh no, it would register for me ten years ago. What I'm saying to you is though, is that is that uh, you you. It, I'm always, because I'm hyper aware of time, I'm anxious, right? So I'm always living in the future. I'm not living in the present. I'm constantly living in the future, you know? I mean, I'm trying to, to I, I recognize that more now. Over the past couple of years, I recognized it. And when I've got a lot of projects on my plate, I really feel like I'm living in the future. Like I'm thinking right. to myself, well, as soon as I finish cutting this piece, and delivering this thing, then I'm good. But I'm always living in that space, that headspace. Like as soon as I'm done with this job, my, you know, things What's will be the clear. Next thing? Right. And so the thing right now is like right now, in between a bunch of little things. Like I was cutting some commercials for a lawyer that I've got to do, and I'm waiting for waiting to hear back on the copy before we could do the voiceover. But that's done. You know what I mean? Um, and then I've got a couple of music videos that are coming up around the bend 
that I got to do. But I'm in between things right now. And usually what happens is I get into this headspace where I'm working like crazy on projects. And then I got to do like something physical. For yourself, right. No, not so much for myself. I, I actually have to do something for for my girlfriend, Resistor. Because then, cause most of my time gets swallowed up in the work. And so then for a few days, I'll go and organize the house or take on a house project or do something that has nothing to do with the creative yeah, aspects. To me, to me that just sounds like life. Yeah, yeah, you're just doing the life <laughs> thing. You know what I mean? But it's like I, I, I've learned to look forward to that for a little while. And then after that, I can get jumping right back in. But again... To be anxious is to live in the future, you know, to, you know, living in the future is to be anxious, right? Because you're always trying to get to that future point. So if, if 10 years ago, when I was doing Machetero, you had told me I was going to be in this place here, yes, I would be disappointed. But when I look back on the 10 years, right, right, I say to myself, uh, yeah, but, you know, it's not like, it's not like I ain't, couldn't. Could I have done things differently? Yeah, but I, I like I make my decisions and I do what I do based on the information that I have available to me. So, you know, I go out and I, I do my pitching. I go out and I try to make things happen based on what I know. I mean, I can't, I don't know. I, there's no other way to do it. Right. Um, you only recently found out about the flim flam, but the fact that this is all fake and... Everything everyone told you to do, yeah, is that that, but bullshit. and that, and so, yeah, you know, that's yeah, that's true. And that, <laughs> it's like, but the thing is that the everyone beginning, told you do X, Y, and Z. You did X, but the Y, beginning, and Z. Like the beginning of that process of finding out that it was bullshit was doing machetero. Okay, so like I remember uh, in the mid nineties, there, there, I had to get out of the film business for like a hot minute. Because there was no work. And there was this problem in the mid-90s, early mid-90s, right? So like 93, 94, around there. So I got a job working at Long Island University, um, working in the audiovisual department, where we would set up mics and, and audio and visual stuff and, you know, everything from like bringing a VHS deck that's we're taking it back now. <laughs> a VHS a VHS deck or a, or like a, a a beta deck or a DVD into a classroom and setting it up for a teacher for a class to you know setting up a mic for setting up mics and sound for for graduation that kind of thing. And Spike Spike Lee, whose office was down the block from um, Long Island University. 40 Acres is down the block from LIU. And he used to do these seminars where he would invite filmmakers to speak to people, to speak to ordinary people about the film industry and to give them sort of, you know, insights. Mentorship, right. Yeah, it was more like just insights. It really wasn't mentorship. <laughs> Although, for one person, it was mentorship, okay? And it was the most unlikely person. Um but so like, you know, Martin Scorsese came through and um, Robert De Niro came through 
you know, all these people that Spike knew personally. And it was sort of like a way of like trying to help people get into the business, you know, but only by giving them information from these iconic filmmakers. Right. So one day, so my job, because I was with, because I worked for LIU and these things were happening at LIU, I got the job to work on weekends to, to set up coordinate that stuff right all the sound stuff right and all the video stuff well it was mostly sound it wasn't they didn't show any clips really i don't remember them showing any clips i remember it was just it was just you know sound sit there set up everything sit at the board make sure nothing feeds back and all this other stuff and whatnot so one day and people used to pay 25 dollars. now that's 25 dollars. you know 25 dollars is not a, a lot of money but Back then, $25 was a stretch. You know what I mean? It was a bit of a stretch. I mean, I was making That like, was three movies, dude. You, the, the $5 theaters were still around. Yeah, yeah. Think about that, right? Like, yeah. You could take two days and see five movies. Yeah, yeah, see yeah. $25. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> so it was 25 bucks, and, and, like, people who came, there were people who... You would look at these people that were paying $25 to come in, and you look at them and be like, oh, my God. There's just, like... Like, I knew... I'm, I'm a... You know, for all of my anger issues and for all of my vitriol and rage, I'm a pretty sensitive person. And the reason that I have all that anger and rage is because I am a sensitive person. And this is not, the film business is not a place for sensitive people, right? And so as sensitive as I was, and and I, and I, it, it, and, you know, contrary to popular belief, in order for a person to be sensitive, they have to be strong, right? So I saw myself as being strong and I saw myself as being sensitive and I tried to balance those out when I was first getting getting into this business. But when I saw people that were coming into these, um, that were coming into these seminars, right? You could tell these people would be completely destroyed by this industry. Like they just, it just seemed like they did not have what, it was like watching lambs walk into slaughter. It was just like, you know, bad. Why? Um, They didn't know anything about the business. They they were starry-eyed about it. Um, you could tell they, they, they were under the impression that, um, I, well, I got the feeling that people were under the impression that uh, if they had written something good and gotten it to somebody's hands, oh, it was going to yeah, yeah, fucking take mean. off right. kind of thing. And it was like... You, they don't realize the signal-to-noise ratio... It was ridiculous. Really yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it is like 10 million other people with a script under right. their bed just like you, bro. Yeah. Like, you know? The chances of your script getting in someone's hands... Right. And it's, the funny thing is, though, is that I, 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 the part of, there's a part of me that feels bad for them and there's a part of me that feels like they shouldn't know how bad it is, right? Like if they knew how bad it was, right? If they knew how difficult it was going in, then they wouldn't, they wouldn't even attempt it. it. Right. Yeah. See, for me, it's funny because like for me, film, for a long time, like I had tons and tons of stuff I wanted to write. And I was very, very interested in, in adaptations, like just looking at short stories and adapting them for film. Not directing, not filmmaking, but doing adaptation work 
I was like, you know what? That's something I could do. That's really I just listened. Did you listen to that podcast I told you about? Which I one? sent you about with with Paul Schrader and Russell Banks. Oh, I, I have. I listened to that. I didn't listen to that Paul Schrader one. The Paul Schrader and yeah. Russell Banks together. I haven't listened to that one yet. That's about adaption, so you should check that out. Yeah, it's all it's all about adapting things and and yeah. Schrader, dude. He's got. Oh, that's right. Because um, first performed, right? Was that an adaptation? No, no, no. Yeah, that was original, but 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 um, he. So Schrader I had he was adapting a short story from uh, no, the guy who was on the podcast. No, no. Sh- he, uh, Schrader had adapted Affliction by Russell Banks. Oh, I see. And so they were okay. talking about about him about not so much that they were talking about uh, they were talking about adapting work to the screen. You know, and Russell Banks has had a few films adapted, and he's worked with a, a few filmmakers, and the way that he works, and the way that Schrader works. But you should check that out. Yeah. The only reason I would ever have gotten into adaptations, because as a kid, you would read a book, right? And you would love a book. And then you would see the film, and you'd be like, why? I, I didn't, I didn't. How? I, How did they mess this up? Yeah, but you know what the funny I thing is? I need to write that, this wrong. Yeah, but the thing is that I never read books uh, you, that I became was, movies. Yeah, but I was a prolific reader. I mean, I just read I did, everything. I was too. But the thing is that I always read books, right? That never became movies. And I would sit there and go, man, they should make a movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but but these people came in, right? So these people would come in and they didn't know. And there was a there was a part of, you know, there was a part of them that 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 in a way that, that was kind of hopeful for me. But at the other hand of it, it was also kind of sad. But one day, um, Spike invites Abel Farrar. Oh boy! Um, and for the most part, like right, especially you know, Robert De Niro's gotten much better about talking about his process um, since then. But when Robert De Niro gave his thing, it really was not good. He wasn't really that good about talking about his process and how right. he did things and so on and so forth. I think he was very intuitive. And so it, these were a lot of, I don't know if maybe he ever had to. Maybe he had to never really think about it to explain what it is that he does. Maybe he never thought about it. He thought about, thought about it. He thought about I think he thought about it for himself. Internally, but right, right. He did, But it's not, not in a way that he had to communicate it, right? So that wasn't good. Scorsese was great because Scorsese got people excited about the history of cinema and his Oh, you know, Scorsese is always on this emphasis of the history of cinema, right? And so, you know, people went home with homework after the after right. Scorsese, and the cool thing about that too is that, like I said, it was like the early mid nineties. This is like ninety three, ninety four, right? Maybe even a little bit later, ninety four, ninety five, right? Um, there's no internet, <laughs> you know. There's no. There's no. Oh, I'm gonna watch this on fucking YouTube. <laughs> right, you gotta go out and find. It. You gotta find these yeah, movies. You gotta you know go I mean? out and like, find out where you know, it's playing. This is like, <laughs> hello and welcome to. Or movie you gotta phone. go. This to was like, still movie phone time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, or or um, you had to go to specialty um, video stores. I can't remember. Was it Revolution Video? I think there was a place called Revolution Video. I want to say there was. Where was my two spots? There were two spots in Manhattan. There was one on was 23rd always, Street. Yeah, I was always into the low-rent places like TLA. That was like, 
you know, oh, half yeah. video shop, half porno shop. <laughs> yeah, but didn't TLA also, didn't they turn into a distribution company? Yeah, they did. TLA re- releasing. Yeah, TLA used to have a place on um, 8th Street downtown. Yeah. You know, by the church. Yeah. So that's where, that was like always on the way because I had friends who went to NYU. So I was always down there. And they used to Cooper do a lot Union, of like uh, gay indie films. Yeah, yeah. They had a lot of that yeah. stuff too. But they had a lot of Japanese films. So like this is where I could get my, uh, like Zatoichi. That was the place. That was the spot where I was going to find like but the there blind was a, samurai. So man. when I was in, when I was in the one year of visual arts that I did. And all those coming of age films that I didn't watch. I was like, They had a spot man. on 23rd Street. No, on 3rd Avenue between 23rd and 24th, there was a video store. It was a famous video store because all they had yeah. was art house and, and foreign films and so on and so forth. So you had to dig. So when Scorsese, came, you know, when he spoke... You're talking about the place in Greenwich Village? I'm talking about... No, it was on 3rd Avenue between okay, 23rd and 24th there was, there was another spot that used to be down by Mona Lisa. It was like two blocks up from there on Bleecker. Uh, there was like a couple of those. Yeah, there was a few, but you had to you had to like first of all, it was it was a somewhat expensive endeavor because you had to join this video store, right? Yeah. And it was not like down the block. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? You're it was a fucking train ride. You're in Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah. It's an hour ride into yeah. Manhattan. Yeah. To yeah. Go, to get go get these videos. You know. Hope you don't get jacked for them on the way home and have <laughs> yeah. to pay for them. Right. Um. But the but so. He was good. Like I said, Scorsese was good. De Niro not so... And I can't remember... Those were the people that... I, I remember De Niro. I remember Scorsese. I remember... Uh, well, Spike did one. Um, and I remember... Abel. Abel. I, it, Abel's unforgettable. That Of all of them, that was the most yeah. unforgettable experience. And that was... Dude, it was... It was amazing. I mean... Everybody walks out and they're like, okay, I got homework to do, right? In terms of like Scorsese with De Niro, they're kind of scratching their head. Like, I, I, I don't, you know, like it was, I could pay $25 to see Robert De Niro. And that's what happened. <laughs> I saw Robert De Niro, but I'm not sure if I got anything out of it. You know what I mean? Um, but uh, Abel, oh my God. So, Able, people are so. There's a point in time where, where they're they're like like Spike talks a little bit and asks a question. Asks him, he does an introduction. He asks questions to Able, and then they open it up to people to questions, ask questions, right. right? To the to the audience, and so the audience is asking questions, and the question is always invariably every single question is how do I get started? I got a script, blah blah blah, you know, blah blah blah, right? And so, like, you know, here's what I always wanted to know. Why do you think that the way they got started is the way you're going to get started? I never really understood. You know why? That. I'll tell you why. No, no, I, no. I've always this is like something that's always fascinated me. I'll tell you why. When I, I look at why. how other people approach problems, I'm like, no, 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 no. I know why. I know why. I can tell you why. I can tell you why. We live in a society, right, in which if you want to do something, right, there is a very well laid out. Tell me what I need to do in there, and I get it done. That's how we grow up. We're told that you go to school, then you get a job, and then you buy a house, and it's a straight line. It's a straight line. So when these people walk in with an idea, they don't even have a script, bro. Half these people didn't have a script. They had an idea for a script. 
and they thought something was going to happen. No, that's man, that's what it was that's sad. Work. Let me tell you something. Like, dude, that's sad, man. That's a sad. It is thing. sad to me. Right. That's being it was that really starry eyed. That's like being yes, a five you know year what? old in college. Right. But the thing is that, and and on a, in a strange level, on a strange, yeah, on a strange level, Spike was trying to tell them. This isn't for you. No. <laughs> this is work. No, if you want to do this, effort? if you want to do this, it's not a straight line. It's like a labyrinth. And you got to put up with that. And people were confused by that. But when these people went in, most of the time, they came out, you know, knowing more for sure than they when they walked in. But not knowing that, like, they came in and they and somebody told them, there's no such thing as gravity. Which is not how art works. Like, if you're going to be an artist, this is something that requires not 20%, not 40%, not 50%. It's 100%. Right. Right? Like, it requires the full force of your will right. to go and manifest the thing that you want. Like, you have to but make it, something it, it out actually, of it. But it, it, requires, it requires more than that. Right, it requires more than a hundred percent. It literally, it, which is impossible. Right, so that's impossible. It's impossible for something to take more than a hundred percent. How's that possible? That's not even possible. Right, you literally have to. If you're going to be an artist or you're going to be in this business, right, you literally have to mine parts of yourself that you never even knew existed, so that you right. can it's go deeply, beyond it's the hundred percent. Philosophical. It's deeply psychological. You really have to know what the fuck you want. Like, I, I think there's two kinds of artists, too. Like, especially with music. If my brothers had just put together a band and toured, they could have made a living doing exactly what they wanted. But that's not what they wanted. They were just like these people who went to Spike Seminar. They thought they were going to be discovered. Right. Right? They were going to be king shit. It's like, right. no, dude. Like, if you'd have just played shows and worked... You would have had exactly what you wanted. You would have that life. You would make a living. You would be happy. You'd be on the road all the time. You'd be fucking exhausted from being on the road all the time, but you would have the life you want. But these people would come out from these seminars, right? They would come out of the seminars. They would know a little more, but I'm they not didn't sure know that art is work. Like that's no, 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 no. No, they knew what, they, dude. It's work. Yeah, yeah, but it's not. It's not. It's not that it's work and that they don't understand. That's not what I'm... It's not about work. I think people are willing to put in the work. I think that the thing is that it's not a straight line and gravity doesn't exist and then it's a fucking labyrinth. It's not... It, it, it's nowhere near a straight line. It's really fucking easy. I'll, I'll say this. I, I think you're actually saying it's not a sure thing. People want a sure thing. People are. People think that by having a script... Or having an idea, they can make it a straight line. Right, right. But, but there's no, right. There's but, no parachute, bro. You're jumping out of this plane. Right. There's nothing. There might be pots and pans in your parachute. Sure. Like if you want to be a and doctor, there might be a parachute in your parachute. If you, you want to be a doctor and you go to school and you pass your board certified exams, you're a doctor. I got you. But even if you, you can don't, write a script and get a film made and get a film made and have it be a hit and never get another thing made. Absolutely. That's the difference. That's what I'm saying to you. That it's no straight line. There's no gravity. It's all a fucking labyrinth. But having said that, right? Abel told them 
he really got them inspired. I mean, I walked out fucking inspired. I didn't even pay, and I walked out inspired, right? I mean, the things that Abel said at this some at this you know thing were ridiculous. I mean, he was trying to he was trying to be cool, right? Because Spike at the time was this was like I said, this is ninety four, ninety five, right? Spike is just getting his role on. You know what I mean? He's done like four or five films, right? Right. Um, and Abel was just like, he goes, it, it, it goes crazy. It starts to go crazy because everybody's asking the same questions, right? And Abel's going, you're asking all the wrong questions. You're All of you are asking the wrong questions. You're all asking me how to get into Hollywood. You don't want to be in Hollywood. What you want to do is you want to make a film. He says, I don't care. He says, go make a film. Don't fucking tell, don't have people tell you that you have to shoot it on film. I mean, this is back in the day when like, this is like the high eight, not even, just about the high eight dates. High eight is like the big thing right then and there. Hi, yeah, mini DV wasn't even out. Mini DV wasn't Regular even DV cams were just, they came in 95. Right. So it hadn't even, it was like, you know, it was like, so what, so what Abel was telling them was, <laughs> DV cam was don't go to Hollywood, go write your script, go get your VHS camera and go make a movie. Right. He told people, just go make the movie. And then he said, pull a Robert Rodriguez. He was worse than that, dude. Go, go, he, go, go El Mariachi, man. No, Credit cards. he started naming names. Okay, he he says, so um, he says all the New York guys are in Hollywood, but they're all in New York and they're shooting. But all the New York guys are, are shooting for the studios. Right. I forgot what Scorsese was shooting in 95, but Scorsese shooting. No, this is like 93 or something. 92 or 93. This is like Goodfellas or something. Something like that. Right. So um, Abel is shooting a remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Spike is shooting Malcolm X and Scorsese doing something else, right? And so they're all, if I'm not mistaken, they're all at, was it Paramount or Warner Bros? One of the two. Yeah, yeah. So he's saying all the New York guys are at the same studio, all doing movies at the same time, right? And people keep asking Abel, like, who they should talk to, when they go to Hollywood, I mean, people are asking the right questions, right? Who do I go to? When I go to Hollywood, who do I talk to, right? Abel goes, you don't want to go to Hollywood. He's like, they don't fucking know what they're fucking doing. This is the first time that anybody has ever said this to any of these people. These people were people who came like week after week, some of them, you know? Like, they just, and like Abel's going... These motherfuckers don't know what they're fucking doing. These people in Hollywood are crazy. They don't fucking know anything about movies, right? He turns to Spike. He goes, he, he says, he says, like, look, I was doing Invasion of the Body Snatch at the same time that Spike was doing Malcolm X, same time that Scorsese was doing his thing, right? He goes, they were giving me shit like crazy. And I know they were giving Spike shit. 
And he's like, I can name the people who are giving me shit. Here's, if you ever come across this guy, fuck him. Tell him I told him to go fuck himself. He doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. He doesn't know how to fucking make a movie. He wouldn't know how to fucking make a movie if they hit him in the fucking head with it, right? And I'm going, what? Like, this is completely insane. Completely taboo. Totally worth the $25? Totally worth the $25, <laughs> I right? got my money's worth today. Wait, but hold on a second. So... At the time, Abel must have been on, he must have been on the shit, right? Because he's wearing a leather jacket, right? He's wearing these, one of those, at the time, like a, a old school leather jacket, right? His it's got the spikes on his it. His hand, no, no, like a, like a, like a peacoat, but, you right, know, right. single brusting, yeah, right? Yeah, I got you, I got you. So he, he's, his hand, his right, his left hand is in his Leather sleeve. He hasn't taken his leather jacket off the whole time. Like he's wearing it inside. He's it's inside his sleeve, and he's scratching uh, his arm. Jesus Christ, he's jonesing. Right? He's scratching his arm, and the more it goes on, the more agitated he's becoming. Like fuck this guy, and fuck that guy. <laughs> and Spike's like, you know, that's not how you should do business in Hollywood, you know, like, he's like trying to calm us down, well, but, but, but Abel no, goes, no, fuck him. <laughs> but Abel goes, Abel goes, this guy doesn't fucking know what he's doing, that guy doesn't know what he's fucking doing, if you ever come across these motherfuckers, he goes, and then he turns and he goes, right, Spike, I know you fucking were dealing with these guys, and Spike's like, yo, keep my name out of it, it was a beautiful moment, it was an incredibly beautiful moment, then it gets even better, Okay, like if that wasn't enough, it gets even better. At um, Abel is trying to break through these people. He sees what it is. Right, he's piercing the veil. He he's like, you gotta you gotta wake the fuck up, right? It can't be about going to Hollywood. It can't be about. And a lot of these people are coming because they want a lifestyle. They right. want power. I, I totally see. So we're we're kind of on the same. We're we're saying not the same thing exactly, but it's like there's different motivations for being in the arts, right? Right. Like there are people who want to be in L. A. Right. Driving around in their convertible. They want to walk on a red carpet. And they blah, want, blah, yeah. Rubbing shoulders. Stuff, I couldn't yeah. give two fucks about yeah, yeah, yeah. any of that shit. Dude. A lot of these people are like that, right? Because that's what they think it is. And but that's, that's what not they want. what it is. Like, you meet these people. They're normal people, dude. Like, they're... Right. Well, they're, they're not about normal, but they're insane. The is, they're people like anybody right. else. Like, but, some of them are assholes. Some of them are nice. So he says, go make your movie, right, with your VHS camera. He says, and he says, listen, if you have problems, if you can't figure something out, right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you my address. He gives us his address. He literally gives out his address and he says, write me. You got problems, write me. You don't know what you're doing. You can't figure out what's going on. Write me. He says, don't fucking come to my house. Don't fucking knock on my door. I'm giving you my address to write me. Don't fucking find my phone number and don't call me. Write me and I'll write you back. Now, it didn't matter that he probably wasn't going to write back. 
But the fact the that gesture. he did it was like right. fucking fantastic. Right. The gesture is there. It's saying, you know, look, there are people out there who are willing to reach an arm out there and pull you up. It's not like you're in this by yourself, right? Like, yes, there's no direction. Yes, there's no roadmap. But you know what? There are a bunch of motherfuckers run walking around the road. We're all in the same labyrinth, right? I, I, I take your point, you know? And that, to me, was like... A, like I think everybody walked out of there, right? And they they were like... The, you could tell the people that were not... They they wanted to they wanted to write something. They had something to say. They didn't know where to start. They didn't know how to get going. They didn't know what they had to do. They didn't know anything at all. Nothing at all, right? Um, and so they they walked out feeling great. Like yeah, some of them crushed. <laughs> some of them recovering from being crushed. Right. Uh, but a lot of people walked out feeling like they got something. Like somebody yeah. gave them something they needed to know. Yeah. It's like, thank you for saying those things. Cause... Like, I'm going to tell you something right now. You know how I say how, like, every panel that I've ever They tell seen, you the bullshit line. you the bullshit. No. Abel was not. He wasn't that guy. It was 100 pure, 100% pure, uncut, just fucking. No f- hashtag no filter hashtag no filter <laughs> you know he was just like straight to it you know um and i you know it's funny because maybe that had a, a huge effect on me because when i went and did machetero machetero started off as a short film 23 pages right it started i had first written the script in 2002 after i saw what was going on 9-11 uh, it's literally a response to 9/11, Machetero. And I and I, I didn't want to talk about, I didn't want to talk about 9/11 directly, because, as people would say, too soon. Yeah, it was too soon. Like to address it directly, would people had already made up their mind. There was no talking. Yeah, so that was restrained vagabond. Like to me, you should have gone. Balls deep, man. You should have gone all the way. Oh, but I did. I did with Machetero. But my my Machetero is definitely a response. But my thing is, I wanted to take that situation of what happened on 9-11 and transfer it to something that people didn't know about, which was the Puerto Rican independence movement, right? And then when you're in the Puerto Rican independence movement, because you don't know anything about it, you come to it with a blank slate. Right. Right? There's no there's no prejudgment there. Right. There's there's you're not coming to it with anything with no baggage, right. Yeah, right? So but if if I had done something about 9/11, then either the people who had agreed with me would watch it and the people who don't agree with me wouldn't watch it. But with Machetero, I could fool people thinking, "Oh, this is just something else." You know? And I wrote the script in 2002, started shooting it in 2005. Scrapped everything we shot in 2005, started again in 2006, finished in 2009. Well, finished in 2008, and then I recut it in 2009 after Isak had um, had uh, given me a note on the film, a really important note on the film. Um, uh, 
the, the note that he gave me was that when I had first cut Machetero, so the first cut of Machetero, this 23-minute film, let's, let's, do, let's do a little bit of uh, history on Machetero. The first 23-minute cut, well, but first there's 23 pages, but the first cut is 45 minutes. The reason the cut is 45 minutes is because I'm taking songs from Reconstruction's album Liberation Day and putting them into the film. And using those songs, and this is a really big fucking, this is a big deal. This is a huge risk um, because I had a feeling that nobody was going to like what I was doing, but I had to do it. Like that was, that was what was called for. So what I did was I took the songs from Machetero, from, from, the songs that are in Machetero are, well, Machetero itself is influenced by Reconstruction's Liberation Day. I took songs from Liberation Day, put them into the film, and I put them practically whole into the film, right? And not only did I put the f- songs into the film, I put the lyrics on the screen, and then I juxtaposed images against the song. And so when people were like, what the hell is with all of a sudden, like we're watching a movie and all, all of a sudden text, there's, like, right. there's a like song it. and text and like, what the hell is going on here? And I had this real quick epiphany because once somebody asked me once that, and, and I was like, it's like a Greek chorus. The band, the punk band is like a Greek chorus. They're literally like, if you read the lyrics, there's information in those lyrics that's on narration on, screen, on what's right. happening. Right. And so, that was a huge thing. But, and I thought, you know, like Jeff was a little like weirded out about it. Uh, Resistor, my girlfriend and my producer was like, what are you doing? A lot of other people were like, this is weird. Like, this is like all of a sudden the film just kind of, it kind of keeps going, but it kind of stops too. Like the narrative keeps moving, right? Like the songs were placed to, to move the narrative forward, except that instead of just having the song play in the background, the song was up front and the images were falling back. Right. We're, normally, I guess people would expect something like that in like a musical where you had a literal chorus. Yeah, but I, I, I literally saw and I literally see Machetero as a musical where nobody's singing. Right. No, I... I, I take your point. I understand what you're you saying. You know, but... I think people would have been less weirded out if you'd have had Machetero actually performing in the film. Right, if I, had, if I had people singing, you know. Right, like, like I mean, that's... Yeah, but... but the, so, the, the, so the first cut of the film is 45 minutes, right? And when I start to send it out to festivals, everybody's like, 45 minutes is too long. It's too long of a short... Too long to be a short film and not long enough to be a feature. So I was like, fuck it. So we just started, minutes in there. we started improvising more and more stuff and people would come with ideas and we would fucking just go out and we'd shoot more stuff. But I didn't write anything more. I didn't write any more dialogue. I wrote, that's not true. I wrote three more pages of dialogue. Uh, you know what my favorite part of, of my chitera is? Did I ever tell you what my favorite, what? my favorite part is? When Dilcia's talking to the little boy and he's on the beach at the end that, that, end piece when he's there with the machete dude that shit made me fucking cry i was like i don't know why but i like this yeah but you know what that was that was isak that was isak's note that was his note so his note was that the film was really angry 
Like fucking, it was. And just yeah, you an needed assault. some kind of. And he was like, "It feels like the the film." And you know what? The thing he I never forget the, the the exact quote he said to me. The exact thing he said to me was, "It feels like the film doesn't breathe until we get to Puerto Rico, and we don't get to Puerto Rico until until we're like two thirds yeah. through the film, right? Maybe even three quarters through the film, right?" So I was, so he was like, "So what we need to do?" He says, "You're talking to me about." You know, the whole film is about this guy fighting for Puerto Rico, but, but I don't, I, I don't, don't see why. Puerto Rico. I don't know why he's fighting. I don't see what he's fighting for, right? So that's actually that's a that's a good note. Man. That's, that's a very, fantastic a fucking yeah. note, right? So I go back and I recut the film, right? And what do I do? I cut back this. So what I did was I I created this that kid. It represents sort of like two things at the same time. That kid that the Dilsey is talking about, that kid is actually, he's actually like three different things. So not for profit's character, that's the kid. That's not for profit right? when he's a, when kid. He's a kid. And Dilsey tells him that he needs to grow up to be a machetero, right? And he does. But it's also... Him talking to future, but it's also it's also um, when I got through the cut when after Isak's note, I made that kid also a ghost, like the spirit of the macheteros. Right. So like he's on the beach, and I would shadow. always cut to him sort of in silhouette, like hacking away at the beach, right? Like playing with this machete on the beach. So at certain points in time, I would cut to that image. And it was shot on the beach. It was kind of pretty. We were shooting late in the afternoon, so the light was nice. And- Looks gorgeous, dude. Even on a PD-150, I got to- <laughs> Jeff is bad, man. Let me tell you something. <laughs> so, you know, when I did that, I cut this thing in. I thought of it now as not just as a musical also, but also now as a ghost story. So what was happening was that the spirit of the Macheteros was in Not For Profit's character and it was in Kelvin's character who plays the young rebel. And it was that spirit that was sort of moving through those characters. And that's how that happened. That's how the film, and then I cut the film, I recut the film in 2009 and that was it. Then I showed it to Isak and he was like, oh, this is so much better. This is so much better. And you know we went on we went on to win six awards at all kinds of festivals around the world, bullshit festivals, whack ass bullshit festivals fuck, dude. that don't exist. Laurels anymore. on laurels. <laughs> you put those laurels on Instagram all day long. I did. I'll take them. <laughs> the posters are dope. Yeah, you know. Uh, the funny thing is, my dad just asked me for a poster. He's like, I want a poster. I don't have a poster. And I was like, Oh, okay, all right. All right. I just want the t-shirts, dude. Just some of my much it did. So let me tell you something, dude. But that's ten ten years, man. It was ten years ago. You know what I mean? Ten years ago that I finished it. It's not ten years ago that I started. And like I said, I wrote, started writing the script in two thousand two. Yeah. You know, the script was written in two thousand two. We didn't start shooting until two thousand five. Um, and you know, like the only thing that I wrote after that was the three. I wrote a three page scene. When Kelvin's character 
starts to, he hands the anti-manifesto off to this girl that he kind of sort of likes. So that the information and the spirit of the machetero is being passed on to someone else as, as well. And so, um, but when I, when I had to translate the film into Spanish, I had to literally type all of the dialogue up that that I never had never written. This was stuff that, like, I would right. I'd go on the set and I'd be you, like, the stuff that was improvised. You're like, oh, right, yes. Yeah, so now I gotta fucking Damn. write it down. You know what I mean? <laughs> so the thing was that, like, uh, so when I was shooting Machetero, and yeah, now you know improvised. that work is so easy to do. That's the worst part. You just hand that to somebody who just watches your film, types it all up, and puts it in an SRT. Really? Because I, I gotta, I gotta, um. I gotta finish that off. I mean, I, I've, I've never, I never finished yeah, this, that, this, this. That's like one of those things where you could get someone to do that for not a lot of money. Oh, okay, then that's a good thing. Maybe you know, because I'd love to, I'd love to have the film translated into French, Portuguese, and finish off the Spanish. You know, and I have it's only like thirty-five pages afterwards, so that this, there's only thirty-five pages worth of dialogue, and 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 in the script, but. Um, yeah, I'm I'm really proud of Machetero. I think I haven't watched it in a really long time, uh, but I think it probably holds up. I think it probably holds up. I mean, it's funny too, because like when I was finishing cutting it in like 2008, I tripped over this uh, magazine. This is a real strange story. So I, I, I tripped over this magazine called Vertigo. Vertigo magazine was a film magazine from out of the UK. So I, you know, it was like they were talking about revolutionary films from 1968. And they were talking about films from out of Czechoslovakia and the whole, like the whole Czechoslovakia 1968 uprising and, you know, all this other stuff, right? So I, I picked it up because, you know, I'm curious like that. So I snatched it up and I'm flipping through it. And in the back, there's like this tiny little blurb about this thing called Third Cinema. And I'm like, what? What the fuck? And it's got to do with the Battle of Algiers, right? And I'm like, wait a second, you know? Like, the Battle of Algiers, like, so there's there's three main films that are huge influence on Machetero. One of them is the Battle of Algiers. One of them is uh, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. And the third one is The Spook Who Sat By The Door. So... With Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song and with the Battle of Algiers, I had seen them, but I didn't know that Battle of Algiers was considered third, third cinema. cinema. And the funny thing, too, is that Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song was always considered sort of like the, the, the birth of the black exploitation era. And I, when I saw the film, I was like, this is not really a black exploitation film. This is more like a black art film. It's really weird. You know, it's a really avant-garde film. Um, and so those were my templates, but I didn't know anything about third cinema. And I'm finishing up writing, I'm finishing up editing Machetero, right? So I look up third cinema. I look up third cinema and I read fucking the essay. Um, so people who don't know third cinema is, it's like first cinema... There were these two Argentinian filmmakers who in 1969, I think, 
wrote an essay called Towards a Third Cinema. And it was written by Octavio Hetino and Fernando Solanas, right? Who had also directed a film in Chile called, um, was it, Ch yeah, was it a Chilean film? I'm confusing them. Um, the Hour of the Furnaces. Might have been Argentinian. It should have been Argentinian. I think it was an Argentinian film, but I'm not sure. Oh, yes, it was an Argentinian film. The Hour of the Furnaces, uh, it was a documentary, and it, it, it was done using the aesthetic of third cinema. So these two guys had written this essay dictating that first cinema was Hollywood. So that was like capitalistic in nature. It was all about making money. It was all about telling a story. It was all about entertaining people. It really wasn't about saying anything. The second cinema, second cinema was considered art house European or tour theory, you know, like, you know, and they considered it to be a bit navel gazing and all about, you know, um, itself. Third cinema, for them, they, they were calling upon filmmakers in third world countries to create a revolutionary third cinema that was dealing with people's problems um, on the ground and not just dealing with their problems in terms of... Um, the stories, but also... Their circumstances. But not just their stories and their circumstances, but also coming, creating a new aesthetic that dealt with those circumstances, right? Directly. You know, like aesthetically, right. it had so they, to affect you. Yeah, they basically you, your wanted aesthetics. to have some kind of specificity to their, to right. their place, to locate these, these things in the third world. Right. Um, and so that was third cinema. And then third cinema led me to... The Cuban Movement of Imperfect Cinema, which was written by uh, Espinosa, uh, Julio Garcia Espinosa. And that also led me all the way back to Cinema Novo, which was the whole Brazilian uh, movement, um, which also was similar to Third Cinema, but actually predates Third Cinema, you know. Um, but all of these things, I'm doing all these things without knowing that I'm doing all these things. It's really a strange thing. I, I'm doing these things without knowing that I'm doing them. And I, so that I, so I finish. So as I'm cutting Machetero, I decide, oh, Machetero's third cinema. It's Cinema Novo. It's imperfect cinema, right? And this matches my aesthetic, right? I never forget. So like years later, a few years later, when I finished Machetero, I became friends with Sam Greenlee the author of The Spook Who Sat By The Door and the co-screenwriter of the film, one of the producers, if I'm not mistaken, of Spook Who Sat By The Door, the film. And uh, I called him up one day and sent him a, a, a DVD of Machetero saying, look, you know, this was your, your film was a huge influence on my film. So he watched the film, and if you, you can look this up online, but if you look up San Greenlee and Machetero, and he was like, he said some things that were essentially third cinema-esque, imperfect cinema, um, you know, specifically, where he was like, well, you know, it's funny. He says, I really like, he says, you know, the film was, um, he said, you know, the way you shot the film felt like you didn't have enough time. It felt like you didn't have enough time. It felt like you were um, under pressure, like you were under the gun. 
and like you were always looking over your shoulder for the cops and i was like yeah well, that was pretty much it like you know we got a it was like me and my cameraman we just like you know <laughs> we're like worried about it. he's like yeah but that kind of that attitude came through with the way that you moved the camera and he says the camera was if it the camera was starting to feel like the situation you're shooting a film about revolution and the the film like the camera had this gorilla sort of camera feel to it you know where it was like your characters were improvising and your camera was improvising at the same time and it was a reflection and he says he said so then he said you know um and i said yeah i mean you know we didn't we didn't have much crew we didn't have you know half the time i'm looking over my shoulder for cops i mean i think i think i got arrested like four or five times on machetero or in, in machetero related situations um and so he was like yeah but the thing is that he says i don't know if it was on purpose but that sort of unprofessional that unprofessional sort of feel that the camera has that that's where it's moving around fed into your story it, it reinforced your story like these characters are having to improvise their revolution and you're having to improvise your film with the, with your film with this camera and it was like a gorilla camera and my god it was such a fucking huge compliment like to me that was it like work done i'm done you know <laughs> him Dilcia Pagan who also was one of the the she she plays the role in the film um when i showed the film to her she so Dilcia Pagan is a Puerto Rican political prisoner of war, a former Puerto Rican political prisoner of war. And I remember when I showed this film, when it was like a 45-minute version, I showed the film to Juan Sanchez, the famous Puerto Rican painter. And Juan loved the film. And I, he said to me, uh, I said, I'd spoken to him, I said, oh, I'm thinking about extending it. And he was like, oh, if you extend it, you should maybe get some of the Puerto Rican political prisoners to be in the film, right? And I was like, oh, that's a good idea. He was like, why don't you give Dilcia a call? I said, oh, okay, yeah, maybe I'll try that. So I wound up calling Papuleto, Jesus Papuleto Melendez, one of the original New Yorkian poets who I'm finishing up a documentary on called uh, All Roads Lead to the Fire Escape. Um, so keep an eye out for that. But um, he gave me Dilcia's number. So I called Dilcia. And I said to her, listen, um, uh, my name is Vagabond. I met you very briefly. This is 2005, maybe, right? Uh, I said, I, I met you briefly when you first came out of prison and you came back to East Harlem in 1999. Uh, you know, the band I worked with, Reconstruction, played uh, at your event, you know, your party. And... Um, I'm making this film and it's called Machetero and I'd like for you to be in it. And I said, but you know, it's, it's, it doesn't pull any punches and it's kind of raw and I don't want it. I, I can understand if you don't want to do it because it could be the kind of thing that could give the U S government and you know, an excuse to throw you back in prison. And that's the last thing that I want. Right. And so I'm just saying you know, it's it's going to be a rough film, and I don't want I don't want there to be repercussions because you're in it, 
right? I don't know if this is going to violate your parole on any... I, I don't know what deal she made. I mean, there were certain stipulations in order for them to get free um, that they had to uh, uh, sort of abide by. I didn't know if I was going to be stepping on any of those... Toast, right? Right. And I, you know, better to be cautious than, than not. Uh, and she said to me, in typical Dilsia fashion, the universe is conspiring for you. And I said, how's that? She said, I just got off the phone with my lawyer 10 minutes ago, and I'm off parole. (laughs) And I was like, holy shit, right? So she said yes, and then we went, we flew down, I flew the whole crew uh, and the cast down to Puerto Rico, and we shot in Puerto Rico, and we shot with her. And when she saw the film, she said, you caught the spirit of what it means to be a freedom fighter and a revolutionary. And I was like, I'm done. I don't give a fuck what anybody thinks. Sam Greenlee gave me the fucking thumbs up. Dilcia gave me the thumbs up. And then uh, at the time... Um, I was working with Not For Profit on his ex-Vandals project with DJ Johnny Juice from Public Enemy. So we were always in Long Island at Terra Dome Studios, which essentially was the garage of Chuck D's parents' home, the, the home that he grew up in, Roosevelt, Long Island. And so what happened was when Chuck made a piece of change, uh, he bought, he took over his parents' house, right? Turned it into a sort of like Public Enemy central and moved his parents to Atlanta in a nice place. And so I would see Chuck every once in a while because we would go out there to, you know, with, with I would go out with, with not-for-profit to work with Johnny Juice on the x Vandals project. And Chuck, I gave Chuck a DVD and he saw the film and he thought it was fantastic. I mean, I did an interview with him when he was on Air America uh, about the film. And I was like, man, this is the, I hit the trifecta here. You know what I mean? Like, I don't give a fuck what anybody says. I don't give a fuck what anybody thinks about the film, you know? I mean, for me, the film did everything I wanted it to do artistically. What, whether it did what I wanted to do it, whether, whether I was correct in my assumptions about what it was politically, what it was psychologically to be uh, a political prisoner, to be a prisoner of war, to be, um, you know, a revolutionary. I, 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 I was imagining, but I wasn't sure. I don't, I've never been in that situation. You know what I mean? So to have Dilcia tell me, yes, you're on the money. To have somebody like Sam Greenlee, who also was around revolutions because uh, Sam was in, Sam used to work for the USAID. And he used to work for USAID. He was the spook who sat by the door. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he worked for them when they overthrew the Shah in Iran. Right, right, right. And then he wrote a book about it, which is a fantastic book called Baghdad Blues, where, I, if I'm not mistaken, he becomes sort of politicized during 
during you know during when they when the, when the U.S. is overthrowing the Shah. I mean, he wasn't a part of overthrowing it, but he was working for USAID, so he was around the characters who were actively involved in in the in the plot to overthrow the Shah. So it was so to hear him say, "Yeah, you're on the money." Uh, it was just you know you couldn't tell me nothing, you know. But by the same token, I wanted. I saw that I got like really excited about those things and I wanted the film to to be a springboard for another project, you know, for, for the next project. And so I was trying to find distribution. I remember I went to NALA, National Association of Latino Independent Producers, and uh, The Cell had come out. You remember The Cell? Jennifer Lopez. Yeah, Jennifer Lopez and Vincent D'Onofrio. Yeah, and it that's was... A, that's a totally Hollywood film, dude. Right. That's the kind of film they want to make. Right, right but the thing that is, like, I liked it. Of... I liked it because it was different. It was weird. You know, it was different. It was directed by uh, Tarsim Singh. And, uh, but the, the producer was a Dominican uh, guy named Julio Caro. And he was on this panel, right? And, you know, I'm always talking about panels and how they're lying. He was really pretty honest, you know? Um, so I had just finished Machetero, right? And I, this had to be like 2007, something like that. 2007, around there, right? End of 2007, maybe the beginning of 2008. No, it was probably April of 2008, right? And I said to him, uh, I'm looking for, I'm looking for, distribution for my film. I just finished my feature film. And I, at the time, I had spent $13,000 on it. I, it made, I made the film for $13,000. And I said to him, um, in any other business, you would be able, you know, if you had made something for really cheap, it seems to me that you would have a better chance of distribution because there's less money to recoup, right? So you're... There's chances are that you're going to get into the black, you're going to get into profit than if you had, say, if I'd spent half a million dollars, right? So, like, literally $13,000 is what we have to cover, right? And I said to him, so being that i am spent so little money and I have an international independent film star, I had Isak, and the way that I got Isak was... I worked on a movie called The Keeper that was directed by Joe Brewster. Um, and I was a second AD on The Keeper. And Isak was, uh, played a, a major role in The Keeper uh, along with Regina Taylor and uh, Giancarlo Esposito who I worked with on Do the Right Thing. And me and Giancarlo became friends um, on the keeper and, and me and Isak. And I used to pick them up and take them to set as a second AD. Um, so I had, you know, um, I had a good relationship with, with all those folks, but specifically with Isak and with um, Giancarlo. And one day I was walking um, down the street. I was in Times Square and I ran into Isak, right? And at the time, this must have been around 2000. This was literally around, yeah, this must have been around 1999. This is about how to be 2000. 
This was just before September 11th. I ran into Isak in the street and I said to him, hey man, how you doing? And, you know, we talked for a few minutes. He gave me his number and I said to him, man, I was just thinking about you. And he was like, really? I was like, yeah. At the time I was making, in 1999 and 2000, I was working on a film called Amor y Rabia, which was a film about three anarcho-proto-punks who were trying to find a place in this country where they could just be fucking left alone and do their own thing. And everywhere they go, like in the city, they face police violence and there's police violence ever around. They don't necessarily face police violence, but they see this police violence all around. So they, they take off, they go on the road, they wind up on a Native American reservation. The Native Americans have problems. They wind up going towards the border People on the border have problems. So they, they decide, well, and everywhere they go, they kind of sort of try to help people with their problems. But they realize there's no place that we can go where we could just fucking be left alone to do our thing. And so the only way we can do that is if we start a revolution. And so they decided to start a revolution. They come home back to New York and they decide to start a revolution. And the way they're going to start the revolution, because they're not an army or anything, is they're going to start killing cops. And so... That was the film that I was working on back then. But so the thing was that I had this really weird part where I wanted Isak to play an Orisha. I wanted him to play Oshun, right? And I had this whole... Who was going to play him, <laughs> I had him, you know, with a machete in one hand and a chain in the other. And he was going to like, you know, it was this really weird sort of spiritual aspect of the film that was going to pop up and so I thought oh Isak right so when I ran into him on the street I was like Isak you know I thought of you man I want you to play this part and he was like okay so here's my number when you're ready call me right and you know for a bunch of different reasons Amoyu Javier never got done never got finished but then I started to move on to Machetero and when I wrote Machetero I specifically wrote it for Isak it was important to me. So I guess I should give people a synopsis. I've only been talking for like an hour about the fucking film. But Machetero is about a Puerto Rican political prisoner who's in prison. Uh, and that character's name is Pedro Taino. He's played by Not For Profit, who is the lead singer of the punk band Reconstruction, who I had been managing that band, kind of sort of default managing that band for about oh seven or eight years or six or seven, something like that. Anyway, a long time. And then Isak plays a French journalist who comes to New York to go and goes to prison to interview this Puerto Rican political prisoner and to find out, you know, why he's using violence as a means of liberation towards, you know, his goal of, of freeing Puerto Rico from the United States colonialism. And for those who don't know, Puerto Rico has been a colony of the United States since 1898. And so while they're talking, this other, this young kid is trying to struggle and survive on the streets on his own. And he's growing up to be the next machetero. And Dilcia's role is as a sort of a mentor. She's like a, a mother, an aunt, an older sister, a mentor. She plays that sort of matriarchal figure in the film. And, um, Kelvin Fernandez, my nephew, plays the young rebel who's going to be the next Machetero. So it's about those four characters. Anyway, 
When I go to write Machetero, I write it specifically for Isak. Because Isak, I need for the, the journalist to not be an American. Right. Because I need the journalist to have a greater worldview. On top of that, you know, Isak is from uh, Ivory Coast. And so, originally. And so, um, I also need the journalist to not be white. So Isak, you know, he ticked all the boxes. So I called him, I said to him, no, I, I fucking wrote this specifically for you. Like, this role was written for you. He read it, and he was like, oh, this sounds cool. Let's do it. And that's how I got Esau. Right. Um, so back to Julio Caro. When I get to Julio Caro, I'm like, yo, I made this movie for $13,000. Wouldn't it be... Aren't I a more attractive deal than somebody else who's made a film for half a million or a million dollars? Because there's not as much... You don't have to recoup to as back, much, right. right? And he said, yes, in any other business, that would be the case, but not this one. And that was one of those rare true moments from the panel, you know, where it was like, wow, that's honest. And it blew my mind. And I didn't know what to fucking do with that, you know, because now, like I said, um, I had seen, I had shown it to, to Dilcia. She had given me the, the seal of approval. Uh, Chuck had seen it later on. Sam Greenlee would see it. Isak really liked it. Isak had passed it on. He told me he had passed it on to, uh, ah, her name is um, slipping my mind right now. Amy Amy Taubin, who used to be a critic uh, on the Village Voice, who I always respected. You know, I always loved reading her stuff. You know, and so I talked to, you know, I was thinking that I could get some some sort of distribution, and so, it just yeah, never happened. Kind of track, yeah. right. You know what I mean? Being that I had Isak. You know, um, but it never happened. And so I forewalled it. I, I rented a theater uh, at Clemente Soto Velez, um, which is a, a cultural center, a Puerto Rican cultural center in the Lower East Side on Rivington and, Rivington and Clinton. Um, and you and I ate a lot of Oh, Rivington and Suffolk. Theater. Sorry. Rivington and Suffolk. <laughs> yeah. And. Um, I bought a popcorn machine. I was popcorn I was not great. just the producer. I was the ticket taker, the popcorn maker, the writer, the director. I mean, I was I took one man band DIY shit serious. And the reason I did a seven day um, four wall was because I was told that the New York Times would not review you unless you had. Unless you played seven days in a theater in New York City, uh, you had to play seven days continuously. So for seven days, I did screenings and I advertised on Facebook. This is where this is why I know that Facebook ads don't work. Um, I, I pushed as much as I could. I remember that year I went to the. I bought. I made ten thousand postcards that year, and went out to the Puerto Rican Day Parade. Managed to get myself inside the parade um, and handed out about 7,000 postcards because the, I, timed my, I timed my release to be the weekend after the Puerto Rican Day Parade. Uh, 
And of course, not many people showed up and um, I couldn't get, but more importantly, I couldn't get the critics to show up. Right. They didn't want to do anything. And that's part of, so that's the beginning for me of me realizing that what everybody says is bullshit because they say to you, well, go out and make a film and then, you know, uh, then maybe somebody will pay attention and then nobody pays attention. And then it's like, okay, you want critics to review your film? Well, then you've got to play in a movie theater. We can't review anybody's film. We got to, we got to review, you know, we've got to, but you've got to separate yourself from the pack by being in a theater. All right. So I, I fucking paid for a theater. I rented a theater, you know, and I sat there and, and I, Engaged people on Twitter, engaged critics on Twitter, uh, you know, did my best to reach out, all of that. But, you know, I don't have a lot of money. I didn't have a lot of money. I mean, I asked people, friends of mine who were press people to help me, you know, get craft stuff and right. get some stuff out and so on and so forth. And they did. Uh, uh, shout out to Nada Martinez, who at the time was the wife of my lawyer, Fernando Ramirez. Shout out to Fernando. Um and they were helpful to me, you know, um, and also to uh, Theo Louis, um, who gave me the idea of going to um, of going to Latea, not to Latea, but uh, to Clemente Soto Velez. Right. At the time, at the time, there was a small theater. I think it sat uh, not even fifty, just about fifty people, yeah. something like that. It was close to. It was close tight. To, it was tight. It was like maybe 45 seats or something like that. Yeah, yeah something like that. Um, and it was called the Caballito Theater. It was on the second floor. And, you know, I did everything that I could. Banners, posters. I had posters made. I, I printed 2,000 posters. If people came to the screening, I gave Take them a, a free poster. poster. <laughs> I, would sell, I was selling Machetero t-shirts. I was selling Reconstruction t-shirts. I got pictures of me doing the, the you know, the merchandising, you know, sitting there selling you know, I was the popcorn maker, the ticket taker, and the uh, filmmaker. So you know, it was it was serious business. But uh, I'm glad I made that film. You know, um, that's the thing. I'm really glad I made that film. And I think it's like I looked at a few years later, right? Um, Criterion Collection put out Christopher Nolan's first film, Following, right? I was like, oh shit, I really like Christopher Nolan, you know? Like his in, he's got some interesting approaches to the way he does film, yeah, right? But he's also an inner retentive uh, technician. Like, you know, like a lot of his setups are very involved. Right. No, I I, I get it. But what I'm so what I was saying is like, oh, his first film must be yeah. Gangbusters, you know what I'm saying? And I looked at it and I was like this is this is this is his first film. Yeah, but there's no, there's no, um, there's no verve. There's no, like, like if you saw this as a first film and you were like, this guy's going to go on to big things, you'd be like, you really think so? Because I don't really see it here, you know? And so. Did he write that film? Was that his film or was it? It was his film. It was his film. Maybe that's why. That was for him. Yeah, but what I'm saying to you you is. You know, like, like, like Santana, his own shit is not stuff you like. But when he plays somebody else's stuff, it sounds fantastic. It's right. like that. You but know what, what I'm I mean? saying like, to you? Samba Pati? You yeah. ever hear the original Samba Pati, man? Let me tell you. What I'm saying to you is this. <laughs> if you had put Machetero side by side with following, and you said, which one of these filmmakers is going to do some interesting work? 
you wouldn't you wouldn't walk away with Christopher Nolan. Machetero is a much more involved, much better film. And I'm saying that, yeah, I directed it. Yeah, I wrote it. Yeah, I produced it. Yeah, I fucking did everything. And I'm telling you, if it had not, if it wasn't better, I'd be the first one to say so. But it's not. And I'm just saying that I say that knowing that, I say that to say, to, to, to let people know that it's not about your talent. It's about who you know. Because if it was about talent. Yeah, there's plenty of people who are. Christopher Nolan would be doing this podcast right now. And I would have directed some of his films or I'd have been. No, no, I wouldn't have directed his films, but I would have gone on to do my own thing, you know. Um, But yes, certainly not for a lack of ideas. Yeah. I'll tell you that right now. The the so that's the thing with Machetero. So it's ten years. I I you know, I haven't really spoken about it, but yeah. It's been ten years, you know? It's literally ten years. I, I was gonna I was gonna make a big deal out of it and maybe try and sh- do some screenings out of it and so on and so forth, but I really don't think anybody gives a fuck. I don't think anybody gives a fuck. Even now. You know, I got I have six thousand people on my Facebook page. On the Machetero Facebook page, right? And last time I checked, I think 800 people watched Machetero on Vimeo. When I put it on Vimeo, I put it on Vimeo like, I don't know, maybe five years ago. And in that five years, I think maybe 800 people have seen it. I might be, that might be wrong. It might be like 600. It might not even be 600. I have to check. I don't look at these numbers. They don't no, mean dude, anything. To me. 100 a year is good enough. <laughs> yeah, but 100 a year would be three people a month. You know, <laughs> that's like, you know, I mean, well, no. Uh, How many machetes do you think are out there, man? That's no, that's two people a week. Uh, yeah, but, you know, I'm just saying there's 6,000 people on the Facebook page, you know, but they all haven't seen the film. And the, I don't understand how you can like a Facebook page for a film. And not like, watch the like film. The, they like the images, man. They like the way it looks visually. So my branding is on point. Your, yeah, your branding is fucking killing it, man. Kidding me? My branding. Todos is somos yeah. machetero, man. Those shirts. Yeah. Those were dope. That's but we a actually stealable shirt right there, man. We did that for uh, the, the todos todos somos machetero t-shirts were for September twenty third. After when on September 23rd of 2005, the FBI killed oh Felipeto Ojeda Rios. Jesus fucking Christ. Dude. So I don't want to get Pepito into all was, that. Let me tell you something. Yeah. We were beside ourselves when we heard that shit. Because I just come back from Puerto Rico. Holy shit. So I don't want to ro- go down yeah, that that's, rabbit that's hole. A, that's a, a whole other. emotional wounds in there, man. But that's a whole other thing. But um, it's a whole other uh, I think podcast. like the, one of the first shirts of yours that I saw when I knew that you were dope as a graphic designer, you know the one where you had the red star and the machete. Yeah, I was like, yo, that shit is. Oh, you, tight. Had, yeah, the the the, the, the ma- we had the machete. I think that's like one of the first things I ever saw of yours. I don't know if I saw it on a CD. It might have been that on was, a reconstruction CD back. Yeah, in so the day. so then that was like, that I, was I, Sam. I, Sam. So Sam took the Sam designed the cover for Liberation Day, which was. A red machetero symbol on a, a black on a black field. On a black 
background, yeah. right? And so and then all I was like, dude, as a flag, that was, yeah. as a flag, that yeah. would have been fucking amazing. Could you imagine you're at a protest waving that yeah, shit yeah. around? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Are you the, kidding me? Because the, the Machetero logo, the Macheteros are uh for those who don't know the macheteros are a underground um resistance movement um dedicated to the violent overthrow of puerto rico puerto rican tribal avengers i mean man. sorry overthrow of the united states united states colonialism in puerto rico sorry um and so their logo was red and green uh, so the star was red and the machete was green. Right. And what Sam had done was taken it and made it all red and put it on a black background. So it had more of a sort of like an, an anarcho-communist yeah, dude, feel. Great. Yeah. The first time I saw that shit, I was like, oh my God. Yeah. I mean, it How was just... get one of those on a t-shirt? And it became, that became the Reconstruction logo. That, that machete. The star with the machete. And then... Um, when we did the, and on September 23rd of 2006, I think it was, we did a march, and that's when we made those t-shirts. Todos at, the UN? at the UN? Yeah. And we had the Machetero uh, logo on the sleeve. It was, it was, they were a dope t-shirt, but um, yeah, it was, it was, it was dope. Yeah, well, you know, our merchandising was always on, was point. on point. Our man. branding was, like, was always on point. You know what, they might not... People might not always be all about it, but the T-shirts, that the merch was great. <laughs> I don't know how people couldn't come out just by looking at that fucking poster or that flyer, man. It was just, dude. All I had to do was see that flyer. I was like, I'm, I'm there. Yeah. I'm going to see that. You no, know, and I got a lot of, I got a lot of that when I was at the Puerto Rican Day Parade, like handing out those things. People were like, holy shit, you know? Of and, course, the minute you see it, it's very distinctive. Yeah, and I have you know like, what you know what it's saying. I think I think people see it. And if it speaks to you, yeah, but a lot of people got upset. And they what? were like, "Why?" You, you know what they? A lot of people were upset because they were against the macheteros. That's some, that's that's okay, completely that's fine. That's, that's fine. Not your political but a lot event, of people, yeah, on, but a man. lot of people were upset. Most people who were that's upset what they thought it was appropriation. No, 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 no. Most people were upset in a way that they were afraid for me. They were like, "Yo, how the fuck can you be handing this shit out, bro?" Like, are you crazy? Don't you know you could go in jail for this? For what? People were like that, yeah. For what? Well, that's the kind of repression. For what, a poster? I mean, come on, bro. Like, yeah, but that's the kind of repression that the macheteros had faced against the U.S. You know. I think, and this is like a funny thing, because I would expect that from somebody who was a Serbo-Croat, a former Serbo-Croat, mm-hmm. or uh, who grew up in the Ukraine or in Russia, Chinese person, who grew up under that kind of oppression where a van showed up and they took you away. But here... Yeah, but they do that. They did that in Puerto Rico. I know they did that in Puerto Rico. We're not in Puerto Rico, though. Right, but were, but what I'm saying to you is that, uh, and most of these people who were afraid, most of these people who okay, they were back there during the '60s. They were older cats yeah, yeah. who were like, "How the fuck can you hand this out?" You know, and so a lot of people, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't doubt. Here's a strange thing, I wouldn't doubt if those people didn't show up because they were just fucking afraid. Right. Okay, they for were for them. Afraid. It's like a lizard hindbrain thing. They're like, right, you know, can't do it. They were just like, wait a second, this is not going to happen. You know, I mean, if you look at the, you look at the history of the Puerto Rican independence movement, and you know, Abisu was radiation experiments. You know, 
people spending 25, 30 years in prison, uh, you know, it, the the people losing jobs yeah. on a on a small level, people were losing jobs. People were blacklisted in Puerto Rico for, you know, for advocating for independence. So the older crowd was like, whoa. The younger crowd was like, whoa, this is kind of dope. But they it didn't hold their attention enough because nobody told them that it had to hold their attention, if you get right. my meaning. You know what I mean? And uh, and so there was there was that. But this still doesn't make any sense because now it's on it's on Vimeo. And I, I don't get it, can... dude. So they're not getting upset about chat t shirts. Yeah, but that but yeah, but yeah, but uh <laughs> you have to understand something like Che that that wasn't close to home. You know what I mean? Like people who were afraid were for, probably for them maybe it wasn't, but for if you're over here, you're an American, that's the same thing. They're calling Puerto Ricans yeah, but, Mexicans, dude. Yes, but you don't understand something. Like what I'm saying to you is that there are people who are living here who the FBI busted into somebody's house, somebody's cousins, somebody's brothers, somebody's mother's house they knew somebody, and dragged right? them out and threw them in prison or interrogated them or fucked up their whole life. So they, that was real. I mean, you know, I never forget the first time I played the Liberation Day CD for my mother. And the Liberation Day CD opens with Pedro Albizu Campos. And my mother's reaction to that was like a little girl. And she was like, what, what are you doing with this? Well, like, you're going to get in trouble. And I was like, what are you talking about? Because your parents, I did not know your parents were that conservative. Let me tell no, you it's not about being conservative. You have to understand something. What I'm saying is, in my house, that would not have gone down that way. Like, my parents, they're ready to, you tell them there's a dishukaj, there's something that has to go down now, they're there. Oh, no, but the, my, my, it's not that. That's not it. You got to realize my grandfather was a nationalist and suffered immensely for it. Okay. Okay. I'm immensely like he was literally his family was driven into poverty because of it, you know, Um, and he was betrayed. But on top of that, he was also betrayed by the independence movement, you know, and forced to come to the United States to work as a migrant, to work picking apples and then forced out of financial concerns to literally join the U.S. Army and fight in World War II, you know? So it was, my mother heard that, like people would hear Abisu on the radio. My mother's born 1941. People would hear Abisu on the radio in the 40s. And you got to remember 1950, there's a fucking national, there's an uprising. Yeah. Hayuya, 1950, October 30th, 1950, Puerto Rican nationalists tried to overthrow the U.S. government in Puerto Rico. So when he, when his voice, whenever he made a speech and he made a voice, you know, they, people yeah, heard his voice on the voice. radio. Yeah, you knew it was right. him, dude. But people thought, oh my God, the revolution is tomorrow. You know what I'm saying? So what happened was, here it is, 1997. My mother's listening to this, right? My mother probably hasn't heard this voice since she left Puerto Rico, right? Which which was probably 1950-something, right? She hears this voice. She's a little girl. She reverts back to being a little girl, like, oh, my goodness. Like, this is this is trouble. You know what I mean? She's not, she's not saying, oh, wow, yeah, that's I remember that way back when. No, boom, it's like trouble. This is serious business. Like, why are you putting this on a record? 
for the, for everyone to see. Don't you know that you're creating a? Don't you know you're making yourself a target? That kind you're of you're already a target. See, for for me, in my house, that would have been like you're already a target. Right. My and, and and my mother knows that. Um, my mother knows that too. My mother would say that too. Right. And my mother would be the first one to say to reduce, you, reduce reduce the size of the target. Don't make right. Yourself she a would say, target. don't make yourself, don't be putting that stuff out there. Blah blah blah. I I remember seeing it going. I remember having this disconnect and having to figure out like bridge. Literally, I had literally had to bridge this this gap in time between my mother's reaction to his voice and you know from as a child to now. You know what I mean? Like, I literally had to bridge it. And after a while, she got over it. You know, um, she was like, you know, all that. Be careful and all this other stuff. And but even then, she was like, be careful. I'm, dude. You gotta realize, like, in 1999, 13 Puerto Rican political prisoners get out of prison, and right around 1999, Giuliani, sorry, A.K.A. Adolf Giuliani institutes a zero tolerance policy for uh warrants bench warrants right for not showing up to court just not showing up to court one day i forgot to go to court one day my license was still my license still had my parents address on it they came knocking on my mother's door at 6 30 in the morning looking for you yeah this is two years after i'm talking playing my, you know alisu Okay. Your mom is like, my mother's like, for you, nigga. Shit. My, <laughs> they're waking my brother up at six thirty in the morning. They, they're waking my father up. My father's in his in his boxer shorts. Like, what's going on? My mother calls me. She goes, "What did you do?" I go, "What do you mean? What did I do?" She's like, "The cops were here looking for you. What did you do? What are you involved with?" Yeah. And I'm like, "What? What are you talking about?" TTs at the house. And I'm thinking, you have to understand, but, you know, I'm also thinking it's, this was 19, this was like. See how they got you paranoid, dude? You know, but this is spring of 2000, right? This is probably spring of 2000. Because in 1999, um, September of 1999, September 10th, 1999, the Puerto Rican political prisoners get out, 13 of them, right? April, this is around April. I remember it was spring. April of 2000, these cops come knocking on the door. And I know that the cycle of imprisonment of the Puerto Rican independence movement, of, of having people in the Puerto Rican independence movement always be in prison, is that we let a few go and we round we up a few, a few more. Right. right? So in 1979, right, um, the nationalists, Lolita Leblon, Rafa, Irving Flores, uh, on the name escapes me now. I'm, I forgot the fourth brother. Jesus, that's terrible. Um, they're out. They let out by President Carter. They're part of 1979, right? 1980, a whole crop of new Puerto Ricans gets arrested. You get me? And then I'm sitting here saying, 1999. Is it my turn? <laughs> you know, and, and and it doesn't have to. These these don't have to be. It's not. I'm not saying to me stuff that I'm so dangerous that I'm going to be in prison for the rest of my life. I'm not the doing any of that. They got to make an example. But you the point is that they example. could be. They could right. be just trying to make an example for everybody. They could be just shaking things up. You know what I mean? 
So I didn't know what the deal was. And for, yo, for like three weeks, I was like, yo, I need to find out what the fuck is going on. You know what I mean? And yo, it, it was just straight up. It was some stupid bullshit where I just didn't go to court. That's why, see, people have no idea the fucking terror that someone like Adolf Giuliani brought down. My mother was shook. My father was shook. I was shook for a little bit. I was like, yo, I don't know. I was shook. Yeah, what did I do that they're what looking the fuck for me? Did, like... Why are they knocking on my mother? Like, why? You know what I mean? And then come to find out. You're like, how was I was it the film? Was right. It the cold? Was it... How you, I come you go to. You through the list of Yeah, all kinds of things, right? Like, I've done. They, a, they must like, have gotten me on camera. God damn it. Like, you know, we're talking, like, Reconstruction. We advocated for um, uh, revolutionary violence, Right. Which was something that you couldn't even talk in 1997. You couldn't even talk about advocating for revolutionary violence in the Puerto Rican independence movement because people were that scared that even advocating for violence meant that you were a target. And I had been advocating that for three years, and in a big fucking way, not just advocating like, "Hey, yeah, I believe that you know we have the right to use revolutionary violence to liberate ourselves." Not just that. I mean, like we we're making art with it. We were, you know, making videos, making art, posters, you know, organizing, yeah, edu- political educate, propaganda. Thing. That was the whole thing, the whole nine, you know? I mean, we weren't being revolutionaries, right? We weren't doing revolutionary operations, but we were doing everything but, you know, graffiti campaigns, painting murals, all kinds of shit, you know? And I was putting myself out there, making myself a target. I wanted to be a target. And then they were coming for me. So I was like, oh, I don't know what I did, but, you know, I was shook. And the, but, and how I answered that, that, um, that court appearance is a whole other story. That's a whole other bag of wax that I cannot get into right now. But the point is that my mother was shook when she heard Albisu's voice. And so, it's it's a long hard thing and 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 his voice is also in the film his voice is in the film because the, the, you know uh liberation day opens with pedro's grave and it has um it opens with albisu and um pedro's grave is in machetero so you know but um yeah machetero was um was a great experience. I'm, I'm glad, really glad that I made that film when it was. And I got more Machetero stories to tell, but not now. <laughs>